Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is March 20th, 2014, and my guest is Brian Kaplan, professor of economics at George Mason University. He blogs at EconLog, which, like EconTalk, is part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. His latest book is Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids, and he's working on a book on education. Brian, welcome back to EconTalk. It's great to be back. Our topic for today is education, and uh, part of the, the conversation will, I assume, be a sneak pre- preview of your next book, but I'm hoping we'll get into some more general issues related to measurement and empirical work. What we're going to talk about specifically today is the return to education. What's the impact on a person's earning potential or earning power or income uh, after attending college, graduating from college uh, for that person? So I want to start with some basic empirical uh, measurements. How, how much more do college graduates earn relative to high school graduates, and how has that return changed over time? Yes. So in 2011, college graduates made 83% more than high school graduates. Uh, And high school graduates, namely people who have gone to college, not at all. Uh, How has that uh, amount changed over time? Uh, It's gone up quite a bit. So maybe around 1970, it would have only been about 35 or 40%. So it's something like doubled over the last 40 years during my lifetime. And what are some of the standard explanations for why that's happened? So why is college more productive uh, for people who attend and graduate? Right. So the usual story is that there's been a lot of technological change in the economy and globalization as well, and that this has somehow made it more important to be a college graduate. And among most economists, they do tend to focus on the skills that you supposedly receive in school. And so they think of it as... It's more important to have you know, a general thinking ability and reasoning skills and, uh, and as well as different technical skills that you might learn, learn in school. And that when the economy is more technologically complex and also when you're competing in a global market where one person could mess up a big firm, uh, it's more important to have these skills. So I'd say that's probably the usual view. And what do you think of that view? I think that there's some truth in it, but it's greatly exaggerated, and there's just a lot of other things that are going on that most people study education would rather not talk about. Uh, What are a few of those? Uh, Well, one of the main ones, uh, strangely, for economists to ignore is, even though they do, is that people who go to college are not the same even when they start. So the kind of person who goes to college is different at the beginning, and there are a lot of reasons to think that people who are different in the beginning would have made more money even if they hadn't gone to college. So you know, the most obvious one is that people who go to college are generally smarter. Uh, it's not popular to say it, but all of the evidence confirms it. And they were smarter before they started. Uh, now, there's a lot, also a lot of evidence well, that we'll, – we'll, yes, we'll get into that later. I'm, mm-hmm. But why would that have changed over time? W- what's the reason? So this is a rather – this is an incredible mm-hmm. change, right? I don't think there's any – parallel uh, development in, in, in the area of education over any other time period, uh, a 30, 40-year time period, a doubling of the returns to education, 
you're suggesting that the standard, you started by saying that the standard answer, which is, well, the world's more complex, it's all this technology, and so college students are more valuable. You're not convinced of that. I'm not either, by the way. I I used to be more um, sympathetic to that until I started reading you. Uh, So I'm interested, why would you think that would change over time? Right. Well, again, so there's two, there's an important distinction to make. You need to distinguish between college graduates being more, being more valuable and college itself being more valuable. Those are, those are two different things. So the, you know, the main problem that I have with the usual view is I take a look at what people actually study in school, and I see very little evidence that most students are acquiring any technical skills. And also, surprisingly, when I read educational psychology, there's a lot of question about whether college students are actually learning much in the way of thinking skills either. So I think a, a, a more reasonable story is not so much that the skills that college teaches are more valuable than they used to be, but rather the kind of people who go to college are more valuable than they used to be, which is quite different. Great. A subtle but important distinction. Uh, so let's um, – we're going to get into how that affects the measurement issue, but let's start with a puzzle that you identified in a recent post at EconLog that we'll put up a link to, which is given that increase in – the return to graduate to graduating, which is enormous, uh, you'd think that everybody would 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 want to graduate from college, and in particular, we see lots of policy encouragement of people to attend college and graduate and ideally graduate. So, uh, what is your explanation for why there hasn't been? And sorry, I left out a key point. Hasn't been much of an impact, right? You'd think with that increase. <laughs> A lot more people would want to graduate from college. Uh, They don't seem to be doing that. So what do we know about what's happened to enrollment and graduation over the last 20, 30 years? And um, how do you explain that? Right. So female enrollment has increased a lot. Uh, Male enrollment is what it has not increased uh, nearly as much. And then the graduation rate has been almost flat for for these two decades. I think it may, may have gone up a bit for women. Uh, but that's the but that is the actual picture. Is even though we've seen this very large run up in the payoff to finishing college, it doesn't seem like there's been that much response. And especially when you realize this increase in women going to college probably has a lot more to do with social norms than it does with the return. Well, we don't know that, do we? Uh, well, I mean, if you just see all the other ways that gender norms have changed over this period. It seems plausible that this is just another example of women and the role that they see for themselves in society has changed, and that's why they're going to college more rather than the change in the payoff. Let's throw in uh, but, good point. Yeah. Let's throw in one more piece of data, which I uh, mm-hmm. which I left out, which is what's the return to attending college but not graduating? So, so the rate mm-hmm. the the return you say is is eighty three percent. By the way, is that an annual difference? Uh, no, so so this is a this is just a premium. So this says if you just take a look at the average college graduate and his earnings and compare his earnings to the average high school graduate, the average college graduate makes eighty three percent more in any given year. Or really, in two thousand eleven. So, so we're looking what at. about for someone who has attended college but not graduated? What's the premium for that? That is about ten percent. So not a very good. Less. Not very good. So far less. Which brings us now finally to the question I started with. Apologize for the roundabout way of asking it. So given that big increase in, in the return to graduating, not much of a return to attending, but a big increase, a big improvement in your income if you graduate, why aren't more people working hard graduating? And and why isn't that getting more people to to uh, to stay in school and, and finish? 
Well, probably a lot of what's going on is that for many people, graduation is hard. It's actually hard to pass the classes, hard to keep, hard to keep doing it. I mean, the kind of people who write about education are people who have had a fantastic educational experience. They've always been doing well in class. They've been getting their heads patted from kindergarten on. And not only have, do they have no trouble finishing, but the people they know have no trouble finishing. But most people have a lot of trouble finishing. So right now, the... I think the five-year graduation rate for college, for four-year colleges is only about 55%. So like 45% fall by the wayside during during this period. Uh, as to why exactly it is they don't finish, uh, you know, so part of it is probably just the material's too difficult. So a lot of it is that people get really bored. And then another point is that even if you wouldn't actually fail out, it's just very discouraging to constantly receive C's or worse. And even if you could get your four-year college degree with C's and get something out of the labor market, it's hard to spend four more years being told that you are at the bottom of the barrel. But the, the puzzle then is that while it is hard, enrollment rates haven't even increased for men, I think is what you said. And okay, you have, they, you know, they've, they've increased a little bit. A little bit, but not very bit, much yes. given the huge increase in the premium. And, and so the question you raised in that post was, why aren't more people grasping for the brass ring? Uh, and your point was, uh, based on some other folks' research, which was fascinating, is that, well, if you don't finish, it's not very it's not a very good investment. Uh, that's right, yes. Yeah. So if you were to go and put in three or four years and then not finish, you might only be getting some of this 10% premium. And that is not very good for all of those years that you're putting in. It's, uh, you know, it's not, it really doesn't pay very much. Uh, but you know, you know, here's the here's the key thing to keep in mind. When we say that there's an average graduation rate of like 55 percent, a lot of that is predictable. So if there be, if you have great SAT scores, you did great in high school, then your graduation rate is probably closer to 90 or 95 percent. But on the other hand, if you were in the bottom quarter of, of your high school class, then you're talking maybe like a 10 percent chance of finishing, something along those lines. Uh, so even if you aren't a great student. See, uh, doing the you know, doing the math actually you know, like eventually becomes very, uh, fairly easy. It's like, like, yeah, I can get an 83% if I finish, but I only have a 10% chance of doing that. Even if you don't think in such uh, complex terms or so, think so quantitatively, just noticing that people like you almost never finish is a you know, you know is probably does discourage a lot of people from trying, and then a lot of people give up once they see I was hoping it would be easier, and it's not. Yeah, you're right. Uh, I thought this was a very Way of, nice way of capturing it. For students in the bottom quartile of academic ability, paying a year's tuition is almost as foolish as buying 10,000 lottery tickets. Just that the odds are stacked against them, they have a likely, a small likelihood of, of finishing. And uh, that, that's, that's right. So the way that some of the researchers who have worked on this topic have put it is for the people with really high graduation rates, the fact that the college premium went way up doesn't change anything because it was a great deal in 1970 and it's a great deal now. If you know you're going to finish, you get a 40 or 50% raise and you have four good years where you do well and people say that you're a good student. It's a nice experience, which then pays off. And on the other hand, for people who only have like a 10% chance of finishing, the fact that the return has doubled just means that it's gone from abysmally bad to really bad. Still not much of a reason to go. And then the, you know, the, the really key people, the marginal people, people who are just on the edge, uh, the main result of the research is there just aren't that many people like that. There aren't that many people who are on the border. And so even when the payoff doubles, if you succeed, there aren't that many people who then say, okay, now I'll put in the extra effort to try to do it. Do we know anything about why those people don't finish? I mean, how many of them just were, were getting good grades and just decided to give up versus flunked out? Do we know anything about that? 
Right. So literal flunking out is, is pretty rare just because most colleges, for, perhaps for financial reasons, don't like flunking people out. It's far better to string people along, let them keep going, kind of taking classes, trying, trying, you know, getting, getting, you know, getting decencies. Uh, so you know, certainly their academic performance is quite a bit worse than that of students have finished, but it's not clear that, or the, you know, it doesn't seem there's that many that are literally flunking out. It's just more, more people throwing in the towel. Hmm, interesting. Now you point out, which I never thought about, um, which is embarrassing, but it's true. Uh, you point out that colleges don't give refunds, which is an interesting thing. They <laughs> let you in, right? They, they, I guess the oh, yeah. answer would be, well, you took the classes, you learned what you learned, and so you got your money's worth. But it's an interesting thing. If you think the main value of going through college is finishing, not finishing would seem to be uh, – you'd think there'd be some refunds possible, but there aren't. Right. Well, I mean, if you're if you were college, the first college that started giving refunds, uh, you would probably have a lot of really marginal students showing up. And remember, one of the main things that colleges want to do is preserve the ranking, and being too open does hurt your ranking. So, the kinds of places that would be likely to do this or that would gain the most would be schools that are very unselected to begin with. So, uh, you know, they could work, but. Again, probably the problem is there's a large body of people who are even who, you know who are not very committed to doing well even by today's standards. And so, if you did this, you might get a lot of students who, you know, if you, you know if you think currently, you think the, think the bottom half of college students currently aren't doing a very good job and putting much into it. Imagine how bad students would be if you were offering them a money back guarantee. And you also point out, and I think it's always important to remember, remind people of this that. One of the major costs of college isn't tuition. It's the foregone income that you uh, – the income you give up by not, by not working, and you don't get that back either. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely right, and, and you're right. That's more, that is more important. So you know, one of the things that I've learned writing the book is that even though list prices for tuition have gone way up, still the actual tuition for, the, for, your, for your main four-year state universities is not that much. Uh, so like, you know, after you adjust for all the financial aid and everything else – it's still still only only in the ballpark of like five thousand dollars a year in most places, so actually the foregone earnings uh, you know could easily outweigh that by a factor of three or four. Five thousand. So the list price. This is important, by the way, when people talk about oh, college is getting so expensive. Colleges don't very a small portion at any university pays the full f- freight. Uh, many people get scholarships. Many people get financial aid. Financial aid, of course, is a loan, though. It's not a mm-hmm. – a, 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 Right, right. So that 5000 figure that actually you – know, if it was a loan, that would, that, would, that would not adjust that number. It's only grants or tuition reductions or other things like that that would reduce that number. Wow. That's a low number. <laughs> yeah. So meaning, well, you take you know, so you take a look at the list prices for tuition, and again, of course, these list prices are probably often being paid, especially for public universities, by elite people who actually write about education. But when people have actually stepped back and say, well, what what about most families? What are most families paying for their kids to go to college? It hasn't risen nearly as much as it seems on the surface, uh, which is one of the things that surprised me when I started looking at the numbers. Hmm. What, do you know? Do you, do you know offhand the uh, the average? Uh, List price at state yeah, universities? Yeah, yeah, yeah. so that's, that, that's, that's more like $10,000, $12,000 for four years, for four-year universities. Okay, so it's, it's about it's a less than half is what people actually pay. Mm-hmm. Now, you make an analogy in your post about this uh, issue of uh, the actual return because it's not the same for everybody. So another way to say this is that the average return is 83%, but if you have low ability or low ability to finish – not eighty three percent it's closer to ten uh, you mm-hmm. make it you make an analogy to marriage uh, which I found interesting what is it 
Uh, right. So there's a lot of evidence that, on average, married couples do a lot better financially, and especially, especially men. So married men seem to make a lot more money than otherwise very similar single men. And then there's all sorts of other benefits of marriage. Like one of the main things is you save a lot of living expenses. Uh, you know, just as a side issue for the book, I wind up looking into like how much do people save when they get married? And most estimates are something like takes like 35% off your, off your cost of living. So you take a look at this and marriage looks like a fantastic deal. Uh, but it can be a fantastic deal for most people who do, you know, most people currently do it. So it doesn't mean that it's a fantastic deal for the people who currently don't get married because they very, very possibly would have unusually high divorce rates. Right? So the kinds of people that get married tend to be committed, they're mature, they're ready to settle down. For them, marriage is a great deal. On the other hand, if you're still very immature and impulsive and you just don't feel ready to settle down, then you might think, I'll go and get married, they'll have all these benefits, but quite likely you won't really capture them because you are not yourself prepared to actually reap the benefits. And there are very large differences uh, in divorce rates by education, oh, sure. which of course mm -hmm. magnifies the uh, the, the uh, return to uh, – it complicates measuring the return to education and marriage mm -hmm. independently, right? Right, right. Now actually a much, a much simpler analogy that I drew in, a, in an earlier post is this. Suppose you're a bank and – you lend, you, lend, you, know, you lend money out at 10%, and then someone asks you, so uh, how much do you actually make? And you say 10%. So I said, well, wait a second. Does everyone pay back their loans? And no, there's like a 3% default rate. So wait a second. You aren't really making 10%. You're making 7%. And so, to, so that default rate is actually extremely important when you're running any kind of investment fund. Because you know, even a very small default rate can completely wipe out the apparent gain that you get from the loans that succeed. So imagine if you had you know, loan at 5% and a 6% default rate, you're actually losing money on average. And what I say is very much the same goes for education. The way that most people who talk about education talk, it's as if every time someone tries to get a degree, they succeed. Because they only look at the numbers for the successful people. But that is a lot like looking at the success of a bank by only looking at the money you make on the loans that get repaid. Really what you need to do is count both the loans that get repaid and the ones that don't. And that can easily show that a bank is making a modest profit or losing money. And the same goes for education. You need to look at the educational investments that work as well as the ones that fail. And putting in those ones that fail can have a large effect on the overall, uh, the overall profitability of investing in education. So you really well, need to keep it in mind. You're saying in taking that crude 55% graduation rate and let's make it yes. 50 to make it easy – it says the real premium is 40, and it's 40 because half the people get 80 and the other half get closer to zero. Yeah, yeah exa exactly. Ten. Excuse me, 10. Right. Yes, yes. Uh, yes, so that, so, that, so that is exactly right. So – Right, and then, of course, and then, of course, if you oh, – yeah, now then, as we were saying, now it's, it's, all, it's, you know, it's better to put an average, the average number than 100 percent. Right. So right now, when people talk about education, they, put in, they assume 100 percent completion rate. Far better to put in the 50 percent. Although even better, of course, is to individually tailor the, uh, the, the, the prediction based upon the, uh, the performance of the student in high school and, and uh, SATs and so on. And then you'll see, well, for some people, it really is very close to 80% because they are great students. They always has been, and they're almost certainly going to graduate. And on the other hand, for, as we said, for other people who have maybe a 10% graduation chance, then they're talking a, very, a, a real pittance. Well, I think it's a great example of um, – we'll, we'll come back to this a few more times, I think, of heterogeneity, the fact that people aren't the same, that mm -hmm. people are different. And as a result, uh, you know, when you say, well, what's the 
return to going to college, it's it's in many ways the average is not a meaningful meaningful measure, right? It captures something, even when you include yeah. you know if you we have we've talked about two different measures. One would be the assumption that everybody graduated. That's a, that's the eighty three percent return. If we talk about the assumption, the more realistic assumption, the returns closer to say forty five or fifty percent, because fifty five percent of the people graduate, and the forty five percent who don't only get a ten percent premium for attending. Uh, so as a result, the real returns much lower. But that return, the measured sort of okay, honest average return of fifty something percent. That's very misleading because most – almost nobody gets that return. There's a bunch of people who have a very good chance at the high end of graduating. They're going to get 83. There's a bunch of people at the lower end who have very little chance of graduating. They're going to get 10. There are people in the middle who are something like that, but almost nobody gets 50. Uh, it's, it's either you finish and you get something closer to 80 or you don't. And so as a result, uh, the average is not a very useful uh, measure of what's actually going on. Yes, and of course – even to say that college graduates get 83 is, is very misleading. There's a huge range. One of the main things that matters is your major, where there are your stereotypical high-earning majors, where you are getting a lot more than that. And then there you know, so that would be you know, engineering, computer science, finance, and actually economics. So since this is econ talk, I was actually very surprised to see that there isn't that much difference in the payoff for getting an econ bachelor's degree versus an engineering bachelor's degree. Uh, you know, what I often tell my students is economics is the best paid of all the easy measures. Uh, but I didn't realize <laughs> quite how true that was until I looked at the numbers saying, my God, we're getting almost as much as a computer scientist who worked 80 hours a week all, all through college. It's crazy. And actually learned something. <laughs> That's uh, a joke. Yeah, yeah, that was a well, joke, yeah. Oh, well, our, well, our students learn a lot, Russ. But yeah, what about those other economic students? Exactly, who, uh, exactly. Who, who didn't learn so much. That's right. On the other hand, of course, you have your low-earning majors. Uh, like, you know, actually, actually, like you know, the, the, the standard example in the, in the research of a low-earning major is actually the education major, which is um, not always at the very bottom, but it's close to the very bottom. Ironic. So, those, so now, now you know, you know, worth keeping in mind, so you know, people often make fun of majors like philosophy or political science or education, although the truth, uh, you know, when I looked into it is as long as you know, people who finish on average with those, e with those easier low-paid majors, they still get a substantial benefit in the job market. It's not like they get zero. That's just wrong. But yeah, it is a lot less than they would get if they had been engineers or something like that. Well, in defense, I'm going to defend the education, uh, return to education for a degree for a minute here. Not, not maybe more than a minute, but uh, I, I don't think that people who study education learn very much that's useful about how to be a good teacher. I, I want to put that on the table. However, mm -hmm. however, uh, the wage they earn a, a, if they go into teaching uh, has a large non-monetary component. And uh, both in terms of you get the summers off, you also get the um, thrill of of experiencing young minds coming to to the light, which is really a glorious thing. So salary is not the only thing we really care about. Let's put that make that clear. Having mm -hmm. said that, uh, there are large differences in the monetary compensation of different majors of the people who do graduate. There's a, there's a very common view often associated with David Card and his many students that education is just as lucrative for high-ability students and low-ability students. The way they reach this conclusion is basically saying, look, if you take a look at the graduates of college, high-ability high ability graduates seem to get as large a percentage increase in their earnings as low-ability graduates. Uh, the main problem with this, uh, again, is that they're only looking at graduates. If you go and look at 
the effective ability on whether you graduate at all, that's the main way where you very clearly see that lower ability, lower ability students don't get the same return as high ability students because they're less likely to get much of a return at all. So it's one thing to say if a low ability student manages to get over the finish line, then he'll get a big gain. But what are his chances of getting over that finish line? They're pretty bad. So let's shift gears and let's talk about the underlying explanations for why there's any uh, premium at all. There's Over the years since I've been studying economics, the, the two approaches that, that fight against each other are the human capital model and the signaling model. Talk about what the differences between those two models are and which one you think has, if you can, more uh, weight than the other. Uh, sure. So the human capital model and the signaling model are both stories about how education successfully increases earnings. So they're not disagreeing about whether education actually raises earnings, rather disagreeing about why. Uh, The human capital story says that you go to school, they actually teach you a bunch of useful job skills, you then finish and labor market rewards you because you now are able to do more stuff. The signaling model says, no, 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 that's not what's going on. What's going on is that people go to school, they don't actually learn a lot of useful stuff. However, the whole educational process filters out the, 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 with people who wouldn't have been very good workers. So people who are lower in intelligence, lower in work ethic, lower in conformity, those people tend to not do very well in school. They drop out. They get bad grades. And that's why the labor market cares. It's not that the school actually transforms you from a good worker to a bad worker. It's that the, schooling, the school puts a little sticker on your head, you know, grade A student, grade B student, grade C student. Uh, you know, a, a very simple way of explaining it is think about two different ways to raise the price of a diamond. Uh, one way is by cutting it very beautifully so that it's, a one, it's actually a better diamond. Another way, though, is you put on that funny monocle thing and you look at it and you appraise it. These are both ways that you can raise the price of a diamond. So cutting the diamond can raise the price, but also a very credible appraisal can raise the price as well. And the human capital story basically says that school that school takes these diamonds in the rough and it cuts them very nicely and then that's why they're more valuable and signaling says no 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 what's going on is students show up to school basically as well as good as they're going to be and then what the school does is it puts them it makes it puts them through a bunch of tests makes them jump through a lot of hoops and then it certifies them and certifies their quality at the end and that's why employers actually care now of course you know, no, you know any sensible person will say well there's some truth in both stories but the, so the real question is not, is it all human capital or is it all signaling? The question is, what's the balance? Uh, the general view among most active labor economists is that signaling is basically irrelevant. It's may, you know, maybe 5%, 10%. It's something that we can pretty much forget about. Uh, my view, though, is signaling is more like 80%. And that it's, a slight, labor economists, it's a slight difference. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> most, most labor economists are you – know, are, you know, ignoring a lot of relevant evidence or they're disqualifying a lot of evidence that seems to be very very credible on very on strange methodological grounds right and I say look we should really you know, we should you know, take take a fair a, a different a, a fair look at all the evidence don't just look at the kinds of evidence that economists cite look at what's going on in educational psychology look at what's going on in sociology and of course, also remember what school was like. You know, everyone that's talking about these issues spent well over ten years in school. So, you know, like, you know, does the human capital story actually even fit with your own experience? Uh, what I've generally found is when I argue with with uh, mainstream labor economists face to face, they make a lot of concessions that yeah, the, yeah. I mean, signaling does fit everything I saw, but it can't really be. There's something has to be something misleading about everything that I ever experienced. And I say, well. Why don't we just take what you experience more seriously and think about whether 
the evidence that you have actually is even inconsistent with the signaling model because I don't think it is. So let me push back a little bit. Uh, mm-hmm. I've always been troubled by the signaling model, and I and I agree with you. I, it's it's an interesting uh, – the sociology of labor economists is a fascinating thing because I agree with you. I think most labor economists don't like the signaling model and would be prone, as I am, to dismiss some evidence in favor of it. So I'm going to let you make the case in a second, but let me mm-hmm. let the listeners understand why – I have a natural skepticism about it, and I think a lot of other labor economists do as well. And the reason is is that it's an extremely expensive signal. So you're saying that, well, you, for four years, I give up the chance to work. I pay this tuition, whether it's 5000 or ten or 30 or 40 at a, at a private university. And at the for that enormous amount of money, I prove that I'm a good worker and I get the sticker on my head. Wouldn't there be an easier, cheaper way to get the sticker if all it's doing is measuring ability? This four-year slog that's extremely expensive, that's the best way that people have come up with to to get the sticker? Uh, right. Well, there's, there's so many things to say. I mean, first of all, when you say, is that the best way we've come up with? Is the best way we've come up with given that government showers a trillion dollars a year on education? So it's not that it is somehow one out in some some fair (laughs) contest. Is that that (laughs) something that was one out in a fair contest? You know, this is a very heavily subsidized way to to evaluate worker quality. So that's the first thing to keep in mind: is that government doesn't just have a hand on the scale; it has a it has a truck on the scale in favor of the status quo. So that's the first thing to keep in mind. Uh, Now, the next thing to keep in mind is. Uh, there are many different kinds of ability, and and school seems to actually be weeding people out on almost all the ones you can think of. So it's not just intelligence. You know, intelligence is something. Yeah, you can just give people an IQ test, something like that, and that seems like it'd be a much cheaper way. But what if what you're trying to uh, do, you're trying to find are workers who are you know are, or workers who are hardworking, and especially workers who are conformist. Now there, it's a lot easier to see. Well, why does it have to be so expensive and go on for so long? Well, suppose that someone came along, look, here's a way I'm going to certify that people are hardworking, but it only takes a month. Now, who are the first people who are going to be aligned for this one-month certification? They're going to be people who aren't very hardworking, the people looking for an easy way out. But Brian, so, <laughs> but Brian, if you're arguing that the average college student is proving how hardworking he or she is, I think you got a tough test there. It's really you not have to prove your hard working compared to the competition. So, you, okay. know, you know the old the old story about two guys in the woods and they yeah. see a bear and one yeah. <laughs> one starts putting on his running shoes. You just have to show that you know you, say, you, know, you can't outrun that bear. No, I just have to outrun you. Uh, that's a lot of what's going on in education. Is that you know fifty five percent of people are finishing. They're showing that they are quite a bit better than the forty five percent who don't. Again, I mean, I, I will say it is puzzling. Like, why is it that people are you know like don't finish when they don't have to do that much work? And when you say, well. What college is showing is they weren't even willing to do the little that college asked of them, so so that so that is a problem. Well, I think a different uh, – maybe a better answer to your for your case is that for the majors that, that do pay a premium, a significant premium above the average of the 83% premium for those mm-hmm. who graduate, there are some who really do have to work very hard. Engineering and the sciences, oh, yeah, computer yeah. science, that's, even that's, economics that's have to work really pretty great. hard. Uh, right, but, but, but there's actually a more fundamental ex- answer to your question, and it says, look, not only can signals be expensive, they really have to be if there's a valuable prize at the end. So think about this. Suppose that someone came up with a chemical process to make diamonds as cheaply as plastic. How much longer would people continue to give diamond engagement rings? 
I say like a minute. Yeah. <laughs> right? This would be the end of it. Why? Because an engagement ring, it has to be expensive. Otherwise, it does not show point. commitment. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, so, and, and I say the same thing goes with education. If someone figured out a way to make, uh, to make the current process happen in a year, this would mean that a whole lot of people would put in the year, they'd finish, and then it wouldn't really show that much about you. It's got to be a long, drawn-out, painful process, or else it doesn't really separate you from the pack. And according to signaling all this, that's the key point: is to separate yourself from the pack. So the so the easier it gets, or the or the, or the more or the more or the more subsidized, the more you have to do to show, hey, I am I am at the top of the pack. Yeah, I guess the next question would be, well, you know, why isn't it six years or why isn't it three? It is interesting that, that there's – and, of course, there is some movement toward three. What The movement toward three is the uh, advanced placement phenomenon, which right. is making Although it – Although there's a lot, more, a lot more movement towards five and six. <laughs> yeah, is that true? Uh, yeah, you know, so a lot you – know, like, you know, it is very common for students to not finish in four years. Very common. So that's, that's why these graduation report rates that when they're reported are usually like five or six-year graduation rates for four-year programs – because so many people, even those who finish, don't actually finish on time. And of course, we've talked about this before at Econ Talk. There's a third part of college, which is uh, exploring life and finding out who you are and all that. And the um, the social part of college is a huge part, I think, of why people are willing to spend large sums of money to go, go through the experience. But going back to the signaling versus human capital argument, so I'm um, if, if playing in the armchair – when I think back to the numerous college courses uh, that I took that, that didn't change my life or don't appear to have made me more productive or more interesting or more thoughtful or whatever, um, many of them did. So – and I think that's – we can all that, – that's a silly debate, right? Uh, I, I take your point that when you think about it, there are some majors and some classes that didn't seem to have much productive value. But we can debate that for a long time. I'm curious what evidence – Besides armchair theorizing, you would you point to that that labor economists ignore that you said it was in other fields, et cetera, for the signaling yeah, theory. So, 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 yeah. So in terms of the research, one of the you know, one very well established fact that gets very little play is what's called the sheepskin effect. So I mean, we we've sort of been touching on this this point about how not you know, so starting college without finishing seems to raise earnings by only ten percent, whereas it raises earnings by 80, seems to raise earnings by eighty three percent if you do finish. Um, so. Uh, but this is actually part of a much more general fact, which is that a lot of the payoff for, for education comes from getting your degree. It comes from crossing the finish line. Right now, uh, in the early decades of the signaling model, this fact was not yet well established. And so there was a lively debate. You know, is there a sheepskin effect? Is there not a sheepskin effect? For, for, you know, as long, until the sheepskin effect was well established, when it was still in debate, almost everyone took for granted that a large sheepskin effect would show that, 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 that signaling was important. Because otherwise, why would it be so important to just get over that finish line? You know, so in, in, in terms think, of the human capital model, it's, it's really puzzling. Like, why, what is it, the last class that teaches you? The, the teaches capstone. You, uh, it's, it's the capstone class. That's the whole idea. Yeah, the, the, the capstone class, yeah. Um, so... Um, you know, like, why is it the person one Aristotle class short of graduation is only is 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 getting, well, you know, only ten percent? Whereas if you just finish that class, you would get eighty three percent. Well, hang on, um, hang yeah, on. Yeah. Two things. First of all, uh, for those who are, um, I think uh, I don't know if this is a universally understood uh, name, but a sheepskin is another word for a graduating college. Getting a sh getting yeah. your sheepskin. I don't know the origin of that. Do you know it, Brian? Uh, yes, yes, yeah, yes, I do. So it's another word for diploma, and the reason is diplomas used to be, used to be written on sheepskins, actually. Oh, which, uh, which is called, like, I think it's, is it vellum? 
What's there's a name for sheepskin? Some kind of yeah, that, another that name. Sounds that sounds right. I'm not sure I, that's right, uh, but I see what yeah, you're saying. Yeah. It's it's a form of, yeah. of ancient of ancient right. uh, paper like stuff. Um, so yes, yes. So it's funny. So anyway, uh, like so. You know, but so no. My question is as long as no. My question. Hang on. My question is. It's ten percent. You said the returns ten percent if you don't finish. Is it ten percent if you go for yeah, premium? Yeah, the premium. Uh, but, Sorry, yes, premium is over high school students is only ten percent if you don't graduate. Uh, that is, attending colleges makes you a little more money relative to a high school graduate. Is that true if you go for one year, two years, and three years? Because what you're claiming is you're t- you might be claiming if you go for three and a half semesters and you're one short course short of graduation, you still only get ten percent. Is that true? It's a little more complicated than that. So if, if you awesome. if you go, if you go and take a very close look at the data for college, you'll see something like like the first the first year college that might increase. You know, as long as you successfully finish that, that might increase your earnings by five to ten percent. Then year then year two maybe another five to ten percent. Year three seems to give you nothing, and then it's year four that gives you the uh, gives 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 you the remainder, which is huge. I guess the question would right? be, and we, and we see something very similar for high school as well. So you know, like you know, ninth grade seems to give you a bit, tenth grade a bit, eleventh grade seems to give you nothing at all, and then twelfth grade, finishing that, getting the diploma, that's what gives you a very big raise over what a high school dropout would earn. Yeah, I guess the complication is is that the people who do get say three and a half years into their college career or one course short, why don't they finish? And what, what does that tell you? And I guess yeah, one answer exactly, would be exactly. Then now, now you're thinking like someone who believes in signaling. Now, now you're saying, and you know, an employers asking, wait, why didn't this person finish? What is wrong with that person? I mean, maybe they just had some bad luck. But also, it suggests, look, you know, it, it, in our society, it's expected that you finish. You haven't yep. finished. There are a lot of different ways that you could have made up whatever problems you have. So I'm nervous about you as an applicant. Uh, but just let me to to go back to how how the debate played out. So there was a long period when economists just weren't sure if there was a sheepskin effect or how big it was. During that period, everyone took for granted that a large sheepskin effect would show that signaling was important, and a lack one would would at least undermine that. Now, in the late '80s, early '90s, it became totally clear that there were huge sheepskin effects. Better data came along, and several papers were published, and they've never been really and never been challenged successfully, or even, even not even challenged successfully. Only anyone's even even tried to, you know, even tried to challenge them. The data is so the data is now so clear. But almost as soon as the evidence came in very strongly that there was, that sheepskin effects were very real and very large, let me guess. Then, <laughs> then labor economists yes moved the goalposts and said, well, that doesn't really prove anything. Of course not. Right, and I, yes, and and then and then they came up with some very sophisticated mathematical models where it wouldn't have to prove anything. Say yes, well, yes, you can come up with a model where it doesn't prove anything, but. That doesn't mean that it doesn't. Your, you know, the, like in order to show that it doesn't, that it, in order, basically in order to say that it doesn't mean anything, you have to say, well, maybe you know, there's there's got to be some totally unmeasurable difference between the people who just finish and the people who just don't. And I can't tell you what that thing is, and none of the things we actually measure act work. But uh, that's that's the, that's that's my story. Right, and just you know, when you know when you know that these people that are saying making these arguments have been through the entire educational process, they finished at least three different degrees. You know, to be you know to be a researcher on this, you finished your high school degree, you finished your bachelor's degree, your master's, probably your PhD. And for people like that to say, uh, it's, I'm totally unconvinced that it matters whether you actually get your degree and cross the finish line, to me it's just insane. Like, you know very well, you were a student, you know that if you didn't finish, that would ruin your life and prevent you from, doing, from getting this job. So you know that. Everyone around you knew that. If you were to go and deny that to the fellow students and say, I'm not showing up for the final exam because what difference does it make? It makes a lot of difference. Right? And it makes a lot of difference because people who don't finish are, you know, are quite different from people who do, and employers will hold it against you.
Yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, any other empirical evidence you want to cite that's relevant besides the sheepskin effect? Uh, sure. Well, so I mean, there's there's some there's some abstruse re- research evidence that I could go over, but actually, I'd rather focus on some arguments that I, I, I you know, in a way, I think there should be research on them. Although, in a way, they're too simple and cl- it's too simple and clear to get get a paper. But you know, like you know, so like here is one fact that that I that I that I that, I, that I've, uh, I've often noticed. Uh, what do students do when a professor cancels class? They they're happy, right? They cheer. <laughs> Right, uh, I really want, yeah. So I said, well, you know, and and from a human capital point of view, this is bizarre. This is basically the, the rest are saying, you know, how you went and paid some tuition for me to train you to be a better worker, so you can do better in the, in, in real life. Yeah. Well, I'm going to keep your money, and I'm not going to give you the training. See ya. <laughs> that is effectively what the human capital model is saying. What happens when a professor cancels class? On the other end, you know, so the signaling model says, well, why don't why are the students happy? Because employers will never know that you cancel class. What they're learning, they're never going. They're probably never going to need to know again. It's not going to show up on their transcripts. Uh, if everybody, do, if everybody learns less, then this is not going to change the distribution of grades in all likelihood. So then students get an after afternoon, extra afternoon off, and they are, and, it, and they, then it's not going to affect their future. I um, mean, so this is something that my you know, my 11 year old sons who are you know, fanatical about doing their homework, yet they're delighted with every snow day. You say, why are you delighted? Say, well, it doesn't you know doesn't disadvantage us compared to anyone else. So, and they're like, well, aren't you worried about the stuff? Like, you're not gonna you're gonna need to know the stuff you didn't learn. And you know, even 11, they're cynical enough to go, yeah, right, like that's never gonna happen. Well, I say, yeah, well, yeah, kid, kid, you have, you have, you appear deeply into the system and seen it through nature. Yeah, I, I, I fight off the urge to say, well, Brian, it's in your classes they they cheer, but in my classes they weep. <laughs> uh, but that's that's I, I'm going to leave that. I'm not going to say that. That'd yeah. be, that would be cruel. Right, or, yeah, or here, here's another one of my uh, you know, my favorite debating points. Uh, claim right now you can get the best education in the world for free if you want it. Uh, how, what am I talking about? Well, if you, if you suppose you think Princeton is the best education in the world, you don't need to apply. You don't need to get admitted. All you do is move to Princeton and start attending classes. And in my experience, no one will stop you. No one will card you. If you go to the professor and say, I'm just, I'm not a student here, but I'm interested in your class. Most professors get a tear in their eye. Someone actually (laughs) wants to learn from me. Uh, but if you go and get this totally free Princeton education for four years, there's one thing you won't have at the end. Any proof you ever did it. Right, and uh, if you if you and if you consider this, you know, you know, deal A is you go to Princeton, but there's and you get a Princeton education with no record that you ever did it, or you go to a much lower ranked school where you where you admit you were getting a worse education, but there is a record. Which one is going to do more for your career? Almost everyone says, well, obviously the second one. The first one may make you an interesting person, maybe a great experience, but employers aren't going to care because they won't believe you. There's no sign that you're ever there. Whereas getting a bachelor's degree by the book from Podunk State, on the other hand, that actually is that that that, that gives you, you know, not, you know, that gives you it doesn't give you nearly as much as getting a bachelor's degree from Princeton, but it gives you something, but it gives you something that is real and tangible. Yeah, but your point right? is that, that, your point is is even is is stronger than that. You're saying that even if I could prove I was there, even if you gave me the tests that showed I understood the material. Because I didn't go through the ordeal of writing, doing the homework and writing the tests, I still wouldn't help my employment chances. And that's where it gets a little more complicated, right? Because, you know, I recently talked with uh, John Cochran about MOOCs, and we've talked with others about MOOCs here. 
uh, the online educational opportunities, which, which is what I thought you were going to talk about. I thought you were going to say, well, a person can get a great education for free. They can listen to Econ Talk. They can go to Udacity. <laughs> don't, oh, yeah. la- don't laugh, Brian. Um, you can laugh. They can go to they can go to Udacity and take free classes it's, there. It's a fantastic education. It's just not education in the sense that the labor market cares about. There's Khan Academy. There are all these wonderful resources, and a lot of them, including Econ Talk, are trying to think about ways to help people feel better about what they've actually learned or to give them feedback on what they've learned. But they none of them right now give a certificate. Uh, although uh, Udacity is trying to move in that direction, and some of the online courses are as well. And that's going to be, you know, one of the challenges. But the question would be if a person did not go to school, did not go to university, uh, and instead stayed home for four years, lived with their parents, and took these extraordinary classes which are out there. And let's say did all the work but couldn't prove it, okay? Mm-hmm. So in certain fields, I, I don't think it would matter that they didn't get the, the sheepskin. I think if you could say – they might have trouble getting in the door. I agree with that. Mm-hmm. But they would have learned something literal, very, 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 very useful. Say, for example, if they study computer science at many of these places now that are available online, many of these classes that are available online. You can, you can teach yourself many of these things without going to university. What's true is you can't certify that you've done that. Mm-hmm. And is there, an, is there a test that employers could give? And the answer is eh, maybe, maybe not. It's expensive. It's much easier to, to take a person with good grades who's gone through a, a standard university program. But, of course, many of these people don't go to college and become very successful. They start their own businesses, et cetera. But uh, so it seems – I don't know. It just seems um, – your thought experiment there seems a little – it's a little more complicated. I mean that foot in the door remark that you made is spot on. So I've often had this argument with Tyler Cowen about signaling. He says, look, Brian, you don't know what you're talking about. I actually have a job where I have to hire people and fire people, and I know how things work. And he says, and I say, like, within three months, we know whether work is good or not. So it's crazy to think that you have to go and spend all these years signaling in order to get the other job. But I say, you know, wait a second, you're looking at this the wrong way. You know, what has to happen before you can evaluate someone for three months? You, know, you have to hire them. What has to happen before you, before you can hire them? You have to interview them. What has to happen before you interview them? Well, you have to go and pull their application out of a giant stack of other applications. And you know, so you know, anytime someone has 300 applications for one job, what, what, what are they going to do? They're going to go and start thinning, and thinning it by throwing away applications from people that don't seem like they're worth giving an interview to. So if you have an unconventional transcript, an unconventional background, so maybe you just don't have any proof that you did it, or maybe it's just something weird that you did or unusual that you did, this is something where employers quite reasonably don't give you a chance because they're not in the business of giving chances. They're trying to run a business. To go and actually give every one of 300 applicants a full interview would be, would, would, would be enormously costly. So it's uh, very I'm natural the- that, they, that, they, uh, that they actually throw most applications away before they even give the, give the person much of a chance. I'm going to give you a little more evidence on your behalf, and maybe I stole this from you or maybe you've already thought of it. It's hard to believe I'd have come up with something you haven't thought of, Brian, on this, because I know you think about it a lot, and you're a very clever man. I, I have a Thank lot you, of respect for you. I'm serious. I have a lot of respect for your uh, creativity, as, as a, especially as a debater. But here's an interesting example. Sometimes someone turns out to have lied about their qualifications for a job. Mm-hmm. They, they don't have a degree from Harvard. They didn't get a master's in such and such, and they're immediately fired. And they're not fired because they can't do the job well. They're fired because they lied, not because they're incompetent, which would seem to suggest that that the piece of paper itself is maybe not so important. Well, or, or the I – mean, there, there is a reason to be concerned about having con artists in your employment, right? No, I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying <laughs> yeah. that yeah, – no, 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 I'm, I'm saying just as a business decision, saying, look, this guy is perfectly able to do the job, but he's a con artist. 
I would fire that person. Of course. And I think it would be, it's a smart business. No, I agree. But I'm agreeing with you. I didn't say it well. What I'm saying is that, that actually attending the university didn't have any impact on whether they were good at the job or not. And, and it's not like the people say, oh, the person didn't attend this university, doesn't have the degree. Obviously they can't do the job. They've been doing the job. So it's, it's really just a piece of paper as a signal that matters. And when they're fired, not because they, they uh, don't have the skills, they're fired because they were dishonest, which is fine. I understand that, but it seems to, to be consistent with your, uh, with your theory. Um, Let's talk about uh, how, the signaling and, and human capital models differ in terms of measuring and thinking about the return. And the thing I think is most valuable about it for me is is forcing you to think about the role of ability, underlying ability, mm-hmm. and unobserved variables. Because I think a lot of labor economists – I like your sociological observation that we're all graduates of, of universities and therefore we tend to be sympathetic to this idea that we were transformed by them. We're not just – we didn't just jump through a bunch of hoops. I, I, li- I, li- I like that point. But but I think most people are are – sympathetic to the ability idea because they look at the at the excuse me at the transformational idea the human capital argument because they look at the data and look going to college makes you more productive because you make more money but your point really is that it, the people who go and don't go aren't the same which is where we started so let's come back to that and talk about how that affects how people uh measure uh the return to education why it's so important and is there anything you can do about it uh sure um so, you know, like, like during this whole conversation, we've been talking about the observed education premia. So this is just taking a look in the world and seeing uh, how, much do, how much does the average college graduate make, how much does the average high school graduate make, and then we'll suddenly say, okay, so 83, you know, 83% advantage for the college graduate. Um, now, uh, if, you are, you know, if you are a terrible statistician, you'll then say you know, getting a college degree raises your earnings by 83%. And I, I'm actually a little bit nervous that if you went go through the transcript of our conversation, one or both of us has said that at some point, uh, just as a simplification. It's but tempting. It's, to realize, it's yes, tempting. <laughs> it's, it's tempting but wrong. Right? So, so and I think as I, as I was saying at the beginning, when you see that college graduates are earning 83% more – than high school graduates, you have to ask, right, so there's one thing that's different about them and that the college graduate has went to college and finished, but is that the only thing that's different about college graduates versus high school graduates? And well, of course not. So the average college graduate's gonna be smarter, he's probably gonna be harder working, he's probably going to be more conformist, less impulsive, have many other advantages. And that 83% is capturing all the advantages that the college graduate has, not just the, the single advantage of the education. It's capturing the benefits of a lot of advantages he had before he ever started school, so if you really want to find out how much did his education raise his earnings, you need to, to correct for or adjust for all of these initial advantages. Uh, so there is a big research literature that tries to do this in economics. Uh, if you do this the simple way, namely you just try to go and measure the pre-existing advantages and then redo the, redo the statistics, then you generally find that the true uh, education premium is a lot less than the observed one. So just just basically just putting in uh, you're just just correcting for your me- for your measured IQ before you start college. That will usually bring the payoff down by about thirty percent. It's not thirty percentage points, but thirty percent. So bring it down from like from like eighty to may- from like eighty to maybe fifty five, something like that. So that is one one very important adjustment. And then once you put in that adjustment, you say, well, geez, you know, there's a lot more going on than just intelligence. There's work ethic and conformity. Some of these things there aren't very good measures for. But you can still say it seems plausible that it, that it's that it's actually uh, that it's uh, that it's actually uh, other abilities that are that are accounting for for this. So in my book, after going over all of the evidence that I could find and then and just weigh, weighing it all, I say, well, 
My best guess is that only about 55% of the, of the gain that you seem to get is genuine. And the rest, uh, and the rest is what college graduates would have actually, the extra amount college graduates would have actually earned if they hadn't even gone to college. So that, that is my story. Um, now, now there's, there's a lot of very technical statistical work that, it, that actually has higher status than the research I'm talking about, where they try to say, no, 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 the 83% is genuine. Um, you know, we, we can talk about that if you want, but at least, at least my view yeah. is that the, the simple standard method gives the, gives the obvious answer. And probably as a result, people have to, researchers have turned to a much more complicated approach that gives the answer that they're more interested in hearing, which is what you see is what you get. Let's talk about this general issue in empirical work, which is um, sometimes we're just stuck with variables that are produced by the data sets that we have access to. So, for example, one I've always found strange is years of schooling, mm-hmm. right? We I've seen lots and lots of statistical analyses that use years of schooling as a predictor of, say, income or, or something else. And, of course, a year of schooling in one place is not the same as a year of schooling somewhere else. We had Lant Pritchett on recently talking about education oh, yeah. in, in, in outside in poor countries, and it's tragic, right? A year of education, forget this human capital signaling thing. It, it, in a lot of places, and of course this is true in the United States as well, a year of schooling doesn't mean you learned anything. Um, and, it's not, and, and yet, it's, actually, if you look at earnings in countries where they have really crummy schooling systems, it seems like a year of education in those countries pays as much or as more as it does right here. Is that true? Uh, so I, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm kind yes. of a skeptic about that, Brian. Yes. Well, tell uh, me about that. Uh, right. So there's, there's been a lot of effort to measure the international return to education, look at different countries. And the, sta- the very standard result is that actually in poor countries that generally have, as Lant Pritchett points out, these very crummy educational systems, the payoff in the labor market of, get, of getting another year of education or getting more degrees seems to still be on the order of like 10% per year. Which again, in terms of what they're teaching them is crazy. But in terms of saying, look, people who are willing to jump through these hoops and endure this horrible process where they don't even learn anything, it still seems to say something about you as a worker, and it makes employers in those countries more willing to hire you, and you do actually get an advantage, even though you don't seem to be learning much of anything. Kind of skeptical about that. I guess, you know, if you're in a school, say, where the teacher doesn't show up most of the time, which is uh, one of the examples that, that Pritchett was talking about, you're telling me that you get a premium just for your ability to show that you can sit there? I don't know. It's, it's hard to believe. could be. Right. Well, so you, know, you, can, you can really can take a look at third world countries and see that people with more education uh, you know, make more money there, just like they do here. It's just, you know, uh, the premiums are very similar to here, or actually a bit higher. So, um, you know, I mean, again, the main thing to remember is, of course, employers don't know the details. So you might have gone to the school where the teacher never showed up, and maybe they wouldn't have considered that to be really much of a signal. But if teachers show up, say, two-thirds of the time, and yours didn't show up at all, they may still be willing to give you a big pay hike because they're just playing the odds, you know, which is what all employers are doing all the time is playing the odds. You get 300 applications. You don't go and hire people based upon the truth. You do it based upon your best guess. Oh, because you can't know the truth. But the other example I wanted to mention, which I think is always fascinating, is uh, it's always a debate in the economics profession over the last few years about whether the minimum wage reduces um, employment or not, and if so, by how much. And of course, one of the challenges of that literature, which I don't think it does a very good job of dealing with, is the fact that most workers aren't affected by the minimum wage. So when you're going to trying to look at a, a country of, of hundreds, a few hundred million workers, 100 plus million workers, uh, most of them are not going to have any effect. So it's very difficult to tease out that measure. Um, and so I, 
it, it fascinates me to think about the challenges of actually attributing causal relationships here when it, these things are poorly measured and, and there's a lot of heterogeneity. Uh, right. So, I mean, so I mean, my view is, of course, everything you're saying is true. I, I, mean, I, I still am a, am a firm believer in the view that some numbers are better than no numbers. Uh, it's better to you know, do a very stripped-down, oversimplified version than to just say, do whatever you want to do. I, you know, and, and especially so, you know, when you start with some numbers, however crummy, then you can say, all right, so here's, here's, our, you know, here's our first product. It's a, it's, a, it's a beta. It's a prototype. Now, how can we improve this? So, you know, you know, like one of the main things that I'm doing in the chapter that I'm writing right now is trying to put together all of the evidence on all the different ways that education is supposed to improve your life and just try to, you know, try to go and get a very comprehensive list of like everything anybody's ever said, anything that seems plausible, put it all in. Um, now, like, like, are there going to be problems with this estimate? Yeah, I mean, like, like basically at every single stage there's a problem. Uh, but still, just to get a ballpark idea about what's going on, I mean, I mean, when I think about hiring a contractor, the contractors are never are, that I wouldn't, that I absolutely never hire are the ones when I say how long will it take, and they say I can't tell you. Those people have no chance in my book. Someone who says like maybe six weeks, those people have you know have a chance in my book. At least they're giving me some kind of a number. I mean, we all know it's not the exact truth, but at least be willing to stick their necks out and give and say and tell me something, uh, you know, something I can work with. That's where I can say you know, all right, so you're like you're like way over what you said you were going to do, or. If you know if there's a delay, say well yeah, I mean I can understand a delay of a week, but why are you delayed by three weeks? You know, like it's taken nine weeks. It should be maybe seven based upon the guy who worked for you being sick for a week. So what's up with that? Uh, so you know I mean I like like I, I would always rather have you know some evidence rather rather than no evidence, and then just try to do the best we can. And no, then, you know, fine, you know, and then at the end, you know, also you know, like I think it's always fine to say like, let's let's like so here's like a fudge factor. You know, so if we go and correct for every ability we can measure, we see that the payoff for education seems to go down by 35%. Well, what about all the stuff we haven't put in? Uh, I don't know, maybe, that's, maybe that changes it to like 45%, you know, something like that. Just, you know, just seeing if all the stuff that we can think of and measure easily brings the return down by 30 or 35%, then if we, then if we were to go and tack on the other stuff that we haven't seen, eh, 45% sounds good. And again, like, is that... Uh, you know, is is that like a, a hard fact? No, it's just a reasonable judgment that reasonable people will make. Yeah, I don't disagree with you, by the way. I, I don't think uh, – I have no problem with the idea of arguing that some data is better than none uh, as long as it's relevant. And I, I'm, I'm, my only – my general skepticism is toward uh, sophisticated empirical work, mm -hmm. what's – meaning multiple regression analysis, which struggles, I think, to prove anything that's reliable. I, I find often – and I think what's fascinating, your example is a good example, right? Here you have all this evidence that should have convinced all these labor economists that it has. And either they have a terrible confirmation bias problem, which I'm willing to entertain, or you do, right? And the, and the, and the information is not quite as decisive as it appears to you. Um, I like your point, though, which I think is extremely relevant, which is that – and I, we'd have, you'd have to document it to make it strong, which is, well, gee, before the evidence came out, they did seem to say that they, it wouldn't be found. So when they did find it, they should have had some adjustment of their priors, but that's hard for people. So that's probably confirmation bias. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, what is most impressive is that when I actually talk to people who officially don't believe in signaling, their actual experiences are so similar to mine and so similar to those uh, – so similar to what the signaling model would predict – so I was talking with one very, very eminent labor economist about uh, his experience as an, as, 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 an, as, an, as a bank apprentice in Germany. 
And I saying, so did you consider just going on and being a banker? He said, no, no you have to get college for that. <laughs> and, he, and he actually laughed at his own sentence because he realized that what he was saying fit with my story so much better than his. And yet that was his spontaneous reaction to what he saw with his own eyes. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, we're almost out of time. Let's, uh, let's close with um, uh, an issue that comes up now and then. Uh, well, it's actually a perennial issue which is the case for subsidizing education. A lot of people argue that because the returns are so high, uh, even if they're only 40 or 50 percent, there's there's, the returns are high. And since students have difficulty accessing capital frequently to borrow to get that and make that investment and capital markets for human beings are not, not very effective, I can't promise you my future returns. So it's hard for me to use that as collateral. So people use that along with uh, – the alleged externalities, positive externalities of having an educated public to justify public uh, subsidies to education, either in the financing of education or the provision of it. What you, what's your opinion on that? And uh, we'll close on that. Right. Well, really what's so important about the signaling model is that it says, look, you are, you are correct to believe that education is increasing uh, – increases the, the earnings of the individual gets the education. You're wrong, though, to think that it's socially valuable for everyone to get, more, uh, to get a lot more education – because all that will do is raise the bar for how much you need to have in order to get a job uh, at the same level. So, I mean, the, the heart of the signaling model is saying that actually there's a big negative, negative externality of education, that every time you get more, you're making everyone else who didn't, get the, who didn't jump through the same number of hoops look worse. So, you know, really what the signaling model is saying is that it's an arms yes, race. Yes, it's an arms race. And the fact that the private return, the, you know, the fact, if it is a fact, the private return is high is really a very bad argument for pouring more money on. Um, now, you know, the other point, as we were saying, is that the return is not actually the return, the return uh, that you should be looking at in terms of, of, of this uh, argument from not being able to borrow against your future earnings. The return you should be looking at is the return for the marginal people, the people who are just on the edge of going or not going. And as we've seen, the return for those people is actually not is actually quite mediocre, right? And then finally, if you adjust for adjust for ability and everything else, really, really I would say that. Um, once you appreciate signaling, you realize that so we, we have, we have uh, subsidized education way past the point of positive returns. So I mean, by, my, by my calculations, actually, the social return to education is now quite negative, and it would, be, you know, it would be a much better policy to drastically scale it back. So rather than encouraging more people to go, I think it's better to discourage them from going or at least encourage them less. Uh, so in, in fact, you know, so there, you know, the, you know, like the biggest policy implication that's going to come out of my book is we just have way too much education. I call this the white elephant in the room. Uh, there's way too many people going to school, not, you know, maybe not, maybe not from their own salvage point of view, but certainly from a social point of view to go and pour more money on this really is throwing gasoline on the fire and we need to do less of it. My guest today has been Brian Kaplan. Brian, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks very much for having me, Russ. It is always a pleasure. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday. <laughs>